Welcome to Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus and increment 128. And I want to let our listeners in on, I guess, what people call full disclosure. This We've been recording a little bit ahead of time on these messages. And today, Mark and Emery and myself are recording this message on Good Friday of 2021, April 2nd on Good Friday. So you can see we're a little bit ahead of the curve here, time-wise, but I did want to let you know that's where we stand. This message will be slated for delivery on or about May 23rd, Sunday the 23rd, and this is increment 128. Now, I'm saying that specifically this time because this increment and the next one, 129 perhaps, maybe, we'll see how it goes, have to do with an excursus, which is a kind of a digression from our study in Hebrews, but it will nevertheless prove extremely pertinent to it in ways that will be apparent as we go through this. The excursus I'm calling Revisiting the Israel of God. Revisiting the Israel of God. This will be perhaps cause some of our listeners to perk up their ears because this was an insight that our congregation worked on several years ago that brought about some serious changes all for the good, I believe, and I think we'll reiterate that today. So in this message, or this increment, as well as possibly the next one if we need it, we'll be dealing with an excursus with regard to the revisiting of the Israel of God. We will be going to Hebrews 13 and verse 18 for that and referring to the Israel of God, which is only used once in the scripture, incidentally, and that's in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16. Now, also because of the nature of this, we're retracing a lot of doctrinal territory that we've traveled over for the last 10 or more years, really, maybe 12 years or so. And uh, traversing over that again will involve my innovation a little bit from time to time. In other words, there's going to be a printed copy of these messages, but it may not always square with what I'm saying in the audio version of the increment. So you might want to listen to it if if you're interested, listen to it and maybe read the notes separate from listening to it because it might be a little confusing on trying to match up the two. So there will be a printed version of this, but I plan to maybe digress from this digression from time to time, wholly as the Spirit leads, hopefully. But in any case, Father, we approach your throne of grace even now, as we are urged to do so in Hebrews 4.16, especially given that our great archpriest stands ready to assist us in our time of weakness. And our weakness means that we cannot grasp or apprehend or comprehend the things that you want to show us of ourselves. We require supernatural aid and help. And we request that now in Jesus' name, that you'll help us to understand the things we're about to revisit and the things that are going to challenge us to an enrichment of this insight. My overall prayer, Father, however, is that these messages, these increments, these teachings will result in the joy of the listeners, in a lasting helping of their joy, lasting, not only through the trials of life, but through the duration of our lives here on earth. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in our last increment, I suggested that we're revisiting the theme of the Israel of God. 
And this is what it looks like in the Greek text of Galatians 6.16. It seems like we're going to be going off the beaten path here, and we will be in one regard, but in another regard we will not be. Ton, T-O-N, Israel, Israel, Ton Israel, Tu Theu, the Israel of God. This is a phrase not found anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, not found anywhere else in the Bible. So it's an extraordinarily important term. This identifying term or phrase, the Israel of God, appears only one time in the scripture. Now, I call it an insight because the insight related to the Israel of God in my case, overturned a previous understanding that I held, which could be described as a dispensational view of the Bible and of the plan of God, for that matter. One that, unfortunately, at that time, involved all the features of distinguishing between Israel and the church, and the eschatological scheme that it, include, it included proposes the rapture of the church, followed by the so-called seven-year tribulation, culminating with the second coming of Jesus with the church to set up the 1,000-year millennium, which in turn would be followed by a rebellion, and then the great white throne judgment, the casting of the Antichrist, the devil, the false prophet, all the devil's angels, and a few billion people into the lake of fire to be tortured and tormented in 30 million degree heat, as one dispensational author said, with no relief ever. So there was some shortcomings to that which we call dispensationalism which C.I. Schofield probably made famous, but so did E.W. Bullinger and many others, other teachers of the scriptures. And I was one of the most fervent dispensational advocates until this insight, which I simply label as the Israel of God. Now, in short, the insight, which I call the Israel of God, changed all that. Changed so much that many who may have listened to me were not ready for it. Some, for some, it became pretty controversial. Others had to think it through, and I respect that immensely because, of course, you should. You should never just take a preacher's word for everything. So in short, the insight of the Israel of God changed all that. The whole dispensational scheme <clears throat> began to unravel by the knowledge that the church, ecclesia, also known as the messianic community of confessors of Jesus as the Son of God, was not to be distinguished from Israel, but rather to be understood as God's true Israel. Perhaps it's better said that the Messianic community formed around and really formed in, in corporate with Jesus the Messiah, was the beginning of the true eschatological Israel, the final form Israel was to take as God's people. Now this was first met by the accusation by some that I was teaching what's known as replacement theology, which says in effect that historical Israel, and I choose to call that the people of Israel historical Israel rather than ethnic Israel or even national Israel, but replacement theology, which I view as an evil theology, replacement theology says in effect that historical Israel had been rejected by God. 
due to their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and their becoming enemies of the gospel, etc. And therefore, the Israel, the historical Israel, was replaced by the entity called the church, which in essence is an amalgamation of believing Jews and Gentiles who are joined to Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, while that's true, the church is that, as 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13 says, that community did not replace or displace the ethnic entity called Israel. So that God has emphatically not rejected his historical people Israel is the whole point of Romans 11, for example, which culminates with the proclamation that God's intention is to, quote, save all of Israel, for all Israel will be saved. Paul is speaking there of historical Israel over all the course of all of Israel's history, including the future. That's Romans 11:26, And not only that, but that passage evolves, as it were, into a declaration that God intends to show saving mercy to all people, Jews and Gentiles, over the course of all time in Romans 11.32. And that, as we can show from scriptures, that he's already effectively done so in Jesus Christ and him crucified whom the church is traditionally celebrating today as being crucified between the 12th and the 3rd, between noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which when we were kids, as Roman Catholics, we were supposed to be silent in a room somewhere and make sure we had no fun at all or express no joy at all. And uh, it's a little different today. I'm giving a joy-producing message during that same time period on Good Friday 2021, April 2nd, and this ain't no April Fool's Day. Now, in one sense, therefore, God has already effectively shown mercy to all, saving mercy to all, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. As 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, when Christ died, the one died, all died. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ as Christ was being crucified, reconciling the world to himself. And he's given us the message, Paul said, to be reconciled to God. For he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians, really, if you read 14 through 21 of chapter 5. So to me, the Israel of God came to light as an appropriate name for what we might call the new Israel, or perhaps better to say Israel in its authentic and eschatological form. As this insight began to grow, I saw that this did not only not exclude Israel after the flesh, as Paul called them, and that's another term he uses in 1 Corinthians 10.18. This not only did not exclude Israel after the flesh, and that's, again, ton, the article, T-O-N, and then Israel, again, in the Greek, S-E-I-S-R-A. A to E L Israel after the flesh kata sarka. This not only did not <clears throat> exclude ethnic Israel or Israel after the flesh, as Paul called them in First Corinthians ten eighteen. Rather. It revealed the promise that all of Israel would ultimately be the Israel of God. So the insight that the Israel of God is 
the eschatological people of God not only did not exclude ethnic Israel, as it's called, from being God's people, but rather revealed the promise that all of Israel would ultimately be the Israel of God. So the insight of the Israel of God, as I like to call it, insight because it became an insight to me and to others. The insight of the Israel of God effectively led to an understanding of a universal Christology or word of Christ, which I called, and those who have been following this message for some time, I called it the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, or if you want to make it an adverb, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, which we give the acronym to of USSJC, a ship that's sailing. In connection with USSJC, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, is that which I call the universal impact of the cross of Christ, for short, which is UICC by an acronym. And by universal impact of the cross of Christ, I mean the creative and redemptive impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his death, which was followed by burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation at the right hand of the Father, as we know, that leads to his archpriesthood, which is throughout this age. But the UICC, really we can put this all together, USSJC slash UICC, UICC being the creative and redemptive impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 6.14, which essentially amounts to or is equal to the transformation of all of creation, including all of humanity, over all time, and throughout all of history. In fact, the USSJC, U-I-C-C, USSJC, U-I-C-C, is also understood to be the very redemption of time itself and the redeeming of history itself. UICC, or the universally, the universal impact, which we could say is redemptive, reconciling, rectifying. UICC also goes by the descriptor, which I've given to it, called instauration. Instauration doesn't usually have the meaning I'm giving it. I'm modifying its classical meaning to mean a universal transformation which is exemplified in individual personal transformations of Christ believers, like Paul. That's Galatians 2.20. And in fact, not only Paul, but each and every one who belongs to Christ in Galatians 5.24 will go through or is going through that transformation, a transformation that all of humanity is destined to go through as they are transformed and predestined to be conformed into the image of God's Son. Now, I was led to an understanding of universal salvation. I think the Lord knew I was resistant to that very terminology universal salvation. I was, in fact, quite fiercely. So I was led to an understanding of universal salvation not by being convinced of a specific soteriology or a study of salvation itself, but rather by a specific Christology or an understanding of Jesus Christ's significance itself, himself, namely his universally salvific significance. It was and is, in short, all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, this insight that we call the Israel of God is all about 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's so weird that we're doing this on Good Friday from noon on. It's crazy. It's just, just hit me pretty hard here just now. And so the Israel of God, however it's employed by people. Now, listen very carefully to this. This doctrine, I have to very carefully develop it, and I can see already it's going to go into increment 129. This very term, in fact, the Israel of God, however employed by people, and to whomever it has historically been attributed, is ultimately Jesus himself. He himself is the Israel of God, and as such, he is the singly or the single inclusive representative of the Israel of God. And so the Israel of God is ultimately really Jesus himself. And it will eventually be a title or a descriptor that includes all that is summed up in him. That being all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth, according to Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20. Now, this is the first time I've spoken in public, although this happened a few years ago of a challenge that came to my insight of the Israel of God. It was a challenge that threw me for a loop for quite a, while, quite a few months, actually. And because of the wonderful, gracious faithfulness of God, that challenge ended up being rather a further development and enrichment of the doctrine of the Israel of God and an enrichment of that insight which became more fruitful and is still bearing fruit and I suspect will continue to bear fruit. Years ago, and the only reason I'm making this somewhat personal today is because it is personal and because it is helpful. If it was personal and not helpful, I wouldn't say it. But it's personal and helpful, so I'll say it. Years ago, I came to the conviction that when in Galatians 6.16, Paul the Apostle spoke a benediction in Galatians 6.16 of, quote, and you should consult that verse unless you're driving, a benediction in Galatians 6.16 of peace and mercy to those who follow this rule. Now, I think he's referring to the rule of the way of the new creation brought about through the crucifixion of the old self in Christ. In other words, as many as follow this rule, that is Galatians 6.14, of being crucified to the present world or present age and the world or the present age being crucified to you and then not operating under ritual circumcision but by what Galatians 5.6 called a faith that works by love in Christ Jesus. As many as walk according to this rule, Peace be upon them. So Paul pronounces a, a, a very important benediction, or we could say even more basically a blessing here. So my conviction was that when Paul pronounced this benediction in Galatians 6.16 of peace and mercy to those who follow this rule, and that rule being the way of the new creation brought about through the crucifixion of the old self in Christ and of the world to the self in Christ, and this peace to the Israel of God, peace and mercy to the Israel of God. My initial conviction was that the word chi, which is for, or rather usually translated and, simply and, was used in what is known as an ascensive sense. So there's an ascensive sense sense of the conjunction chi. And I'm getting a little technical here because it's important in the development of this insight. So I initially saw Galatians 6.16 as the word chi or and in an ascensive sense, which means it would be translated as even to rather than also to. So it would be 
translated pretty much as J. Lewis Martin translated it in his wonderful commentary on Galatians. This is how he translated it in 616. As to all those who will follow this standard in their lives, let peace and mercy be upon all. That is to say, upon the Israel of God, or let peace and mercy be upon them, that is, that is to say, upon the Israel of God. See, he used the ascensive use of the conjunction chi, which is what I agree with. So I'll say it again, Galatians 6.16, J. Lewis Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, translated it this way. As to all those who will follow this standard in their lives, let peace and mercy be upon them, that is to say, upon the Israel of God. And so, by this interpretation, the pronunciation of peace and mercy came upon those who follow this rule, which are also the Israel of God, those who follow that rule. Now, again, forgive my being personal here, but when I study a commentary, as I did the 572-page commentary on Galatians by J. Lewis Martin, I usually date the pages that I'm reading or put a date next to the pages I'm reading. So I read this commentary between January and April of 2017. I finished it on April 22nd, 2017 at 11.06 a.m. That's how detailed I am in what I read of commentaries. I thought I was going to teach, and I, I still may someday, I thought I was going to teach Galatians next when I was doing that study. I also studied the 411-page commentary that I'm going to refer to briefly soon by Martinus C. De Boer. Martinus C. De Boer on Galatians. And I read that commentary and studied it pretty thoroughly from the 29th of August in 2018. I began in what I call O.P., my observation post in Oakmont, PA, and did not complete it until Florida on March 7th, 2019. And it was in that 411-page commentary near the end, a very excellent commentary, by the way, that I received a tremendous challenge, which basically said, on set, is it so? To, is this passage really peace and mercy upon all of those who go by this rule, even the Israel of God. Is it really so? And it was a tremendous challenge. And it challenged not only that translation, but it challenged my whole idea and insight of the Israel of God. It was like being a batter who has thrown what the pitchers like to call a filthy curveball, a devastating curveball, one you would never expect and to be quite honest with you now, I can say this from a down the road a little bit, threw me for a tremendous loop. And it was potentially extremely disheartening, discouraging. And so I want to, that's why I want to revisit it today. And I'm not revisiting it publicly until this message. So I'll, let me reiterate, years ago, I came to the conviction that when in Galatians 6.16, Paul the Apostle spoke a benediction in Galatians 6.16 of peace and mercy to those who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God, that the word for chi there or and is an ascensive use of the conjunction, in which case it would be translated, quote, and as many as follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy even upon the Israel of God. This again was in agreement with J. Lewis Martin's translation of Galatians, which accompanied his 572-page commentary on Galatians. And again, to give the sense of history and full disclosure, as people like to say it, I read this commentary between January and April of 2017, and I finished it on April 22nd. His translation, which he actually gave at the beginning of the commentary, as to all those who will follow this standard in their lives, let peace and mercy be upon them. That is to say, upon the Israel of God. That was my conviction that that was the translation. 
But with all insights, you have to ask, onset, is it really so? And I didn't expect to do that. I, I did that for some years to try to test it out. But God sneaked this one in on me through another one of his choice exegetes named Martinez C. DeBoer, who has gone home to be with the Lord, I think, around 2015. I almost wish I could talk to him. But by this interpretation that Martin gives, and some translations reflect, I think including the New International Version, Paul was pronouncing a blessing on one corporate entity, that being the followers of the way of the cross, as I like to call it in 614 of Galatians, who are also known as the Israel of God in 616. The apostle, in other words, was pronouncing a benediction of both peace and mercy on one coherent community, those who follow the rule of what he called earlier faith that works by love. Not circumcision or uncircumcision, but a faith that works by love in Christ Jesus, Galatians 5, 6. That's the rule. It's the rule we could call it. It's the rule of the new creation, or we could call it the way of the cross or the way of Jesus Christ. Peace upon those who walk in that way. And that's, of course, true. But was he also pronouncing mercy on that one community, or was he pronouncing peace on those who follow that rule and mercy on the Israel of God separately? Now, before you say, no, no, he's not doing that, let me wait. Wait a minute. I'm throwing you the same filthy curveball that I swung at. Now, I'll give you a little hint. I not only swung at it, but I hit a home run with it because it enriched rather than impoverished or disproved the insight as to the Israel of God, although it did certainly challenge my translation of Galatians 6.16. Watch. This, again, it's going to take two times to follow this, so I'm going to be dressed in the same suit (laughs) that I'm dressed in now for the next one because we're going to do this back to back. So, because I've, I view this as one of the most important things I've ever taught on, a revisitation of the Israel of God, because it retraces a lot of territory, and I think you'll see at the end how this has a specific reference to Hebrews and also a specific reference to the Bible itself as a single master narrative, a unified master story and narrative. So, here's where we come years later in our own commentary on Hebrews, which we're doing now, to the use of a theological functional specialty which we call dialectics. In fact, this came from Lonergan's list of eight Another thing I think I finished in Florida or on the way home from Florida in a hotel in South Carolina. I remember these things almost photographically, but dialectics is one of eight theological functional specialties that he developed in his book called Method and Theology. Since then, Robert Duran has brought to bear a ninth called Horizons, and I think there might even be a tenth that would be in the offing for the near future. Now, recently I said you're going to find out very soon that you don't need me, and I think you're already finding out that you don't need me because we haven't put prayers up on the text list for some time. I hope you've learned how to do that and pray for yourselves and pray as a result of what the Lord gives you to pray. We may get back to that, but dialectics. We're coming around to the specialty of dialectics. We're using all eight. In fact, nine of those specialties in our interpretation of Hebrews, and that makes for accuracy. It makes even for close to precision in exegesis. So here's where we come now in our visitation, revisitation of the Israel of God. During our own commentary on Hebrews, we come to the use of a theological functional specialty called dialectics, hopefully with beneficial results. And yes, they are beneficial, and I'll prove it. While under the assumption that I would soon be teaching Galatians again, and we did deal with Galatians pretty extensively in our Better Call Paul series, but 
I then started Martinus C. DeBoer's commentary on Galatians on August 29, 2018 in what I call OP on my pages. OP is double, does double time. It's Oakmont, Pennsylvania, but it's also observation post. It's from that observation post that I do all my studies or most of my studies. And then sometimes I put FL or FLA next to where I've been reading because I do a lot of studying in Florida when I can. But I began this study from my observation post in Oakmont, PA, and finished it in Florida on March 7, 2019. And it was a 411-page commentary and an excellent one. I'm very glad to have studied it. And I'm glad to have studied Martin's commentary also. It gave me a tremendous basis in understanding Galatians. Now, toward the end of the DeBoer commentary, that's D, small d-e and then capital b-o-e-r, as DeBoer was dealing with the Israel of God, he made some observations and he put forth an interpretation of the Israel of God that I had not considered. And when I first read it, I felt like a batter who was just thrown a filthy curveball, if I may keep making that analogy since baseball season opened yesterday. I think the Pirates won their opener, but not sure. I think they did. On page 404, DeBoer wrote, quote, with some hesitation, notice this, and I, I really respect this from expositors and teachers and students and theologians. He said, with some hesitation and no claim to certainty, the choice has here been made for separate blessings for two distinct groups. Now, the reason I'm making this today and telling you this today is because it really hit me as being a potentially true interpretation. You can imagine, try to picture my angst at that moment. Now, he expands upon his choice for this option in what I consider to be one of the most brilliant excurses I've ever read. Now, we're doing, that's what we're doing today, an excursus. Comes from the Latin word, well, it is the Latin word excursus. It gives us the English word excursion. It means a digression, but hopefully a beneficial digression. That's what we're doing today, an excursus called the revisiting of the Israel of God. In his brilliant excursus, which he called Excursus 19, The Israel of God, on pages 405 to 408 of his book, he backed up his assertion that this was separate blessings for two distinct groups. By that he meant peace was a blessing pronounced upon those who follow this rule. Mercy was pronounced for the Israel of God, two separate groups. So you're already saying, whoa, wait a minute, that knocks you out of the park. No, this is a ball that I'm going to knock out of the park with the power of the Holy Spirit. What distinguished his interpretation from others is that he avers or affirms that the Israel of God was a title that was used as a self-description by the group of missionaries who opposed Paul in Galatia and who are bringing a different and indoctrinating the churches there in Galatia with a different gospel that Paul called a cursed gospel. So Israel of God was what these opposing missionaries called themselves. We are the Israel of God, no doubt, proudly. We are the Israel of God. We've come here to make you Israel too by making the males in this church submit to circumcision, making the parents in this church make their young male sons submit to circumcision. Then we're going to make you submit to Sabbaths Sabbath days, feasts, and the works of the Mosaic law so that you can be assimilated into us, the Israel of God. 
Now, do I disagree with that? No way. According to DeBoer's understanding, the opponents of Paul would be, according to Paul's expectation, however, and this is the shocker, if that's, listen to this, let me just go off the notes here a little bit. If that's the case, if these opponents of the gospel were people upon whom Paul pronounced a serious apostolic blessing, and pronounced mercy upon them. Then he was pronouncing mercy on the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas he begins this letter, this fiery and we could even say inflammatory letter, with an anathema, the opposite of a blessing. Let anyone who brings another gospel, which is no gospel at all, whether it's an angel or even me or anyone else, let him be under a curse, anathema. So it's extremely shocking that at the end of Galatians, he would pronounce peace upon those who agreed with the gospel of the grace of God and mercy upon those who opposed it. Now, already, I like that idea even though it challenged my sense of the translation of the verse. Now, how am I going to do that? How am I going to fit between those two extremes, as it were? How? Well, that's what, you know what studying is? It's seeing an eye of a needle and saying, I hope I never have to pass through it, and God's saying, but you will. So here goes. Your body can't fit through an eye of a needle, but I can fit your soul through one. And when you come out of the other side of the eye of the needle, you find yourself in the kingdom of God. It's pretty awesome. So how am I going to deal with that? Well, that's why we need two increments today. According to DeBoer's understanding, and we're going to follow this up in increment 129, so don't be confused, I'll have the same suit of clothes on. According to DeBoer's understanding, the opponents of Paul would be, according to Paul's expectation, the recipients of mercy. Now, as I do this, please, if you listen to this message, listen to the next in tandem with it. 128 and 129. It's essentially one teaching. It's a revisitation of the Israel of God, but it's in three separate parts. And it is Really, as far as I go, it's one of the most important things I've done, at least in teaching. So take that for what it's worth. That might not be worth anything to you, and it might be worth something to you. It's worth something to me. So according to DeBoer's understanding, the opponents of Paul would be, according to Paul's own expectation, the recipients of mercy. And so this benediction is entirely in keeping with the major proposition of Paul in Romans. Thank God we came to Hebrews via Romans. Because in Romans 11.32, at the peak of the spire of the cathedral that is Romans, God's great intention is to show mercy to all. Would that include the opponents of the gospel of the grace of God ultimately or not? In fact, did that include the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ was being crucified on Golgotha? To Jews and Gentiles alike, he would show mercy. And has he already in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? I think so even though the manifestation of that mercy will not be until he comes a second time, with that salvation and with that saving mercy in Jude 21, coupled with Hebrews 9.28. Yes, it's good if you look up every verse that we refer to in these increments. It's the best you can do is look up these verses because they're there for a reason. 
You don't have to, of course. None of this stuff is obligatory. But what is remarkable about this interpretation of the Israel of God is that it not only accords with Paul's later emphatic declaration of God's universally salvific intention to show mercy to all in Romans 11.32, but it comes as a shock, enough to turn your hair white, especially after how Paul dealt so severely with his opponents through the, throughout this letter, starting right off with a haymaker. In Galatians 1, 6 to 9, the declaration of an anathema on them, the opposite of a blessing. That this anathema is intended to be temporary, God's wrath is but for a moment, Psalm 30 and verse 6. And Paul's wrath, for that matter, is also but for a moment, the wrath of man. There's a movie coming out called The Wrath of Man, starring Jason Statham, I think, so it's bound to be a shoot 'em up. But the wrath of man, that's also a scriptural term. That the term, the anathema is intended to be temporary. That's because God's wrath and Paul's is but for a moment. And that the blessing is intended to be permanent because in Psalm 136, 26 times, for example, God's mercy is forever, endures forever. So again, that this anathema in Galatians 1, 6 to 9 is intended to be temporary, although real, and the blessing permanent, because mercy endures forever, shows a link between the insights called the Israel of God, an insight I've labeled as the Israel of God, and the insight I've labeled as USSJC slash UICC. I stress again, that this is also a very surprising benediction by Paul, who throughout this scathing letter blasted the very missionaries and preachers who styled themselves to be the Israel of God, God's true Israel, and who were attempting to artificially Israelize the Galatians by forcing the issue of ritual circumcision and the observation of Sabbaths, holy days, and feasts prescribed by the Mosaic Law. Here we're getting into territory that sounds strangely like Hebrews. They were attempting to foist it on the Gentiles who had already been gospelized by Paul and his associates with the truly good news by which they were called into the grace of Christ and had come to believe rightly that they were justified by Messiah's own faithfulness. So we'll close off increment 128 with this and we will begin 129 with what I call my response to Debor. At first, Deborah's interpretation knocked me back and even made me doubt my own insight into the Israel of God. It's hard to describe, and that's why I'm doing it only a year years later, because it was hard. It was it was a weird thing to go through, I'll say that much. It's hard to describe the agony that results from such a challenge when you've been publicly and emphatically teaching something. But it's par for the course, however. It's what you have to experience. It's part of the dues you pay if we're going to grow and if we're committed to a viewpoint on the move. And that's what we've had here in this church. We're on a, we have a viewpoint on the move. And the more we move, the more we see from different angles God's plan. It's always been profitable to do that. Without exception, always been profitable. You can have your static viewpoint. I'll take a dynamic one that's on the move. Because all it is is going around and going up and down and around and looking at Jesus Christ and him crucified from different angles. That's what I mean by a moving viewpoint. What doesn't change is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What remains the same is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. A moving viewpoint doesn't change him, but we are changed as we view him from different standpoints to see different horizons. So again, 
I had publicly and emphatically averred that Jesus Christ himself is the Israel of God, and so are all human beings who are the recipients of the benefits of his fidelity and obedience to God, and his obedience, in fact, to the extent of the death of the cross. How strange this is happening in traditional on a traditional Good Friday right after noon. I began almost immediately then to write a response. I remember kind of like what the notebook looked like, what the pen I was was writing with at the table in Florida. I started writing this out, a response in my usually illegible handwriting. And so I immediately began to write a response to DeBoer's hesitant but not yet certain conclusion. And notice that he made it with hesitation and not with certainty. So I had a very hard time refuting his conclusion, not realizing that the Holy Spirit was leading me even through that pain, as it, it was pain to me, might not be to you, leading me into a strenuous engagement in what we would now call dialectical theology, in which you are engaged in a kind of a conversation with other theologians, or what we call the TFS of dialectics. So I've not spoken of this publicly until this very message because I believe that it has a particular pertinence to Hebrews that I'll demonstrate in 129, increment 129 coming up shortly. I will try to sum it up briefly, even though my initial response was pretty extensive. I'm going to try to sum it up rather briefly in a brief word in increment 129. So Father, we thank you and we pray that you'll continue to manifest this insight and the challenge to it and the result of the challenge to it, which is an enrichment of that wonderful insight, which makes us see Jesus Christ crowned with glory and honor all the more clearly. So we pray that you'll bless this increment, 128, and the one to follow shortly upon it, 129. And may these also be proper and important interpretive tools for us to understand the heavenly and holy homily that we have before us, which is called Hebrews. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.